Well, good morning to everyone. It's good to have you here at First Christian Church and to both of you here in the West and in the East Auditorium. It's a thrill to have you here in this uh, second week after Easter in our Easter series. I'm very glad you're with us. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team and we count it an honor and a privilege that you're joining with us today. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, or a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 20. Maybe maybe you follow scripture on your smartphone. That'd be cool. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew rack in the West Auditorium here in the East Auditorium. There's some people moving around with Bibles right now and uh, grab one from them. And when I say grab it, I mean take it. If you don't own a Bible, we'd be honored if you'd take that as our gift to you today. While you're looking for John chapter 20 today, um, just a brief word about next weekend. Next weekend, well, the next two weekends are very, very big and have a lot of activities for the life of our church. Next weekend, uh, we host two conferences back to back. Friday, uh, we have the Disciple Heritage Fellowship Conference. That's the group that we belong to. Uh, the fellowship, you may recall that we lead that group. There are some more than 80 churches across the country. They'll all be gathering here on Friday. We would love to have you join us in that. And then the next day, there's the Intentional Church Conference, which uh, the DHF people will stay through. But then on the, on the Saturday, um, it, it gets way bigger, if I may. And we have people from three or four states around join us. Uh, we have so many people coming this year that we're doing double lunches and all that sort of stuff. And my sense is that sometimes, um, because it's homegrown, we don't pay attention to it, that, that people outside of First Christian Church put this on their calendar every year, and sometimes our own people miss some really cool stuff. So I'd invite you to be with us either Friday or Saturday or both days of the coming week. There's a way in which you can register as the host church. You don't have to pay. You can come. There's lunch involved both days. We'd love you to come. We'd love you to come on Friday and particularly be hosts, if you will, just to help those who are coming in from out of town. On Saturday, just come and enjoy all the way through. So if you need help in registering, uh, call the church office or you'll notice there's uh, some ways you can do that online, all right? So, uh, again, good to have each and every one of you here today. And here we are, two weeks after Easter, and... um, (laughs) Easter was a great celebration. We, there were a lot of volunteers and staff, people who made it happen for us. And um, if you think about what's involved in, if you will, putting together the events that we had, you've got to think about publicity, you've got to think about preparing both auditoriums. Do they look the same and do they feel the same? And we've got to get the building and programming ready for many guests. The hospitality teams, have got to, I mean, they've got to knock it out of the park. Tech teams, creative people, and um, between... Uh, Friday at 4 o'clock and the last service on Sunday morning, we had 11 different services that weekend. And um, I would like you to collectively thank all the people who made that happen for us. Would you do that, please? Thank you. So, candidly, by Sunday afternoon, all all those services, I could say was a little bit tired. Just a wee bit. As a matter of fact, here's what I looked like during lunch. Not quite, but nonetheless, it was a blast, and uh, thank you for bringing your guests, and uh, perhaps you've joined us today after being with us at Easter a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and now you're back to say, okay, what's church really like, you know? Uh, Well, this is who we are, and so I'm very glad you're with us, and thank you that you're coming back. Welcome. So what happened for Leslie and I, um, we went home. 
Leslie was doing some things downstairs. I went upstairs and took a brief nap, and it wasn't long before our family showed up for our Easter celebrations. The intent was that we would have a, a lunch sometime after four o'clock, a late lunch, early dinner, if you will. We had a wonderful evening, and um, I thought you just might want to see what, how the evening ended uh, with our, our three grandbabies. This is what it looked like at the very end of the evening, right before they left and went home to bed. Um, and you're wondering why you're showing that to us. Just because I'm the grandpa and I get to. <laughs> well, that's sort of it. But I'll, 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 that, so we had a great time with them. And um, really, for the most part, I just wanted to show it to you. Though we'll come back to it in a few minutes, okay? Because what we're doing today is we're carrying on with our post-Easter series, uh, focusing on the scriptural stories. Um, we, we started in Easter, and we're going to go for five weeks looking at some of the things that happened on the days of the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the days there quickly thereafter. And the reason we're doing this, here's our goal. We want to understand why Easter matters. So we're going to stay with all these various narratives of what happened around the lives of the disciples and this band of followers of Jesus Christ. And uh, today we're going to focus on the story of John 20 that deals with someone who is now known as Doubting Thomas. And perhaps you're not familiar with scripture and I don't want to just kind of plump you down right, you know, and plunk you down right in the middle of the story. I want to give you a little bit of background to understand what we're reading about here when we get to verse 19 in a few moments, okay? So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20, you have Jesus' life up until he has died, he's been buried, and he's risen from the dead, though at this point it appears that very few people know that he's risen from the dead. Because to those who've been following him, if you will, you could say um, Jesus' official handling team, his disciples, and the early converts, they, 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 they're struggling to figure out what's going on. Jesus has been killed, and they are shocked at the events. They didn't anticipate his execution. And, and in the grief of the execution, they were certainly unprepared for his resurrection. And do you blame them? I mean, who are you kidding? I mean, we know what death looks like, but how many people do you know who have been resurrected from the dead? And so, like them, we understand death and its implications. We've seen that before, but they, like us, they weren't expecting resurrection. And so in verse 1, if you'll just take a look down there, you'll notice that there's some people who go to the tomb, including a woman by the name of Mary. And they go to Jesus' burial plot. They go to the cemetery to do what we all do at grave sites. You stand there looking at the marker, if you will. They're looking at where the stone was, and they're planning to go and stand there, remember, to mourn. And they immediately have a problem once they arrive there. The tomb is open. The stone is rolled away. And there's nobody. Now Mary, she's listed there. She runs off to find Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And he should have realized what had taken place. But frankly, he's quite clueless. And so the scripture says that he runs off to the gravesite. And apparently there's somebody else who runs with him. We know from other places in Scripture that that guy's name is John. Now, here in the book of John, as he's writing, he doesn't name himself. But on the other hand, he does say, well, there were two guys that ran to the gravesite. One was Peter, and one was the guy who ran fast. And he's got this kind of like, Peter, do you remember? You know, he's writing years later. Do you remember how slowly you, you ran? You're, you're just a slow kind of guy. And you can imagine there's this ribbing that takes place between them for the rest of their lives. And in verse 6, 
They arrive at the tomb and they look inside and there's nothing there except burial cloths. And they have this question, where is the body? So they go back to where they're staying. They go back puzzled, leaving Mary alone in the garden. And in verse 16, Jesus shows up and she recognizes him. With that, she takes up for the disciples saying, hey, you're not going to believe this, but Jesus is alive. And they're not quite so convinced. That's where we are when we get to verse 19. So this is all taking place on a Sunday. What we've talked about so far is taking place, we think, pretty well in the morning. And then we get to the evening. On the evening of the first day of the week, verse 19, we read this. When the disciples were together, when the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. Why is he doing that? Well, he showed where, you know, this is where the nails went in. This is where the spear of the soldier went in my side. And he's showing the wounds. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgiven, they are not forgiven. So can you take a seat in the room with those people with me for just a few minutes? What's your headspace at that moment? Their experience in the last seven days has been an emotional gamut. It had started seven days earlier when they'd arrived in Jerusalem and the whole city had faded Jesus. I mean, there'd been this parade in Jesus' honor. And they come into Jerusalem and in the days after that, there were, de- there were probably debates in the temple about who he was. There were discussions, there were chats, there was laughter, they had dinners together. They met some incredible people. You know, there's... Jewish culture and Jewish practice is that at least once in your life, no matter where you live, you should spend at least Passover in Jerusalem. And so there are pilgrims coming from all around the world with all these different languages, and they get to meet them all. It's a wonderful celebration. But then their joy turns to bitter shock, unbelief. Jesus is arrested. What? How did that happen? And then it goes from shock to absolute horror and grief as this band of visionaries watches the execution of their leader. They're scattered, they're wounded. They're fearfully wondering, Jesus was killed for his wisdom and his spiritual insight and we followed him, we've been identified him, they know we are his team, are we next? There's fear, you see it in verse 19. They're hanging out together behind locked doors. It appears trembling in fear and suddenly a resurrected Jesus is is right in front of them, getting in the room without coming through the door. And they're gonna go, is this Casper? Well, they didn't know who Casper was back in those days, obviously. Some of you don't know who Casper is yourselves because you didn't grow up in the 70s with Casper the ghost. But nonetheless, they, they go, who is this? And surely someone said, well, it really is him because Look, you can see where he was nailed to the cross. You can see his... Well, that's where the spear went in, guys. What we're going to look at next is that when that event took place, one of the original 12 disciples wasn't with with them at the time. His name was Thomas. And throughout the next few days, as the folk from the room would say, we saw Jesus. Tom, can we call him Tom for just a minute? 
Is that all right? Tom had a legitimate response that I, I kind of understand. He would say to these guys, you're barmy, you're bonkers, you're wonkers, you're, you're weird, you've gone half mad with grief, maybe fully mad, are you nuts, you're all, de- you're all delirious, the wine was really bad that night maybe, or something, the days go by and there are countless conversations between Thomas and the rest of the group and they cannot persuade him. Read with me how scriptures describe it. Verse 24, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He said, ah. Now John doesn't say that, but I think that's what he said. Ah, you guys are crazy. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were. Unless, unless I put my hand into his side, I, I'm, I'm not going to believe. A week later, so now we're at Sunday again, all right? His disciples were in the house again. This time, Thomas is with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Same scenario, except this time, Thomas is there. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? This is where I was crucified, okay? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Go right here. Stop doubting, believe. And immediately Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Congratulations, in other words. But more congratulations. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, we're going to unpack that story. But I want you to make note of one more aspect of this scene. In that John, years later, when he's writing this down, he tells us why he wrote it down. One more aspect. He says in verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. There are a lot of things took place, but I'm just giving you the, I'm giving you this, this I'm, you know, across the top of the surface, if you will. Why are they, why, do, why am I doing that? Why am I writing this? These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why is John telling us this story, for that matter, the whole book? I want you to believe that Jesus is God's son. And in believing that Jesus is God's son, you have life in his name. That's the goal. The goal of the whole book, according to John, is that you would believe Jesus is God's son and that's going to lead you to eternal life. So John then tells the story of Thomas not believing in order to get us to believe. He's saying, here's this guy, Thomas, he doesn't believe. And as I tell you this story, I'm telling this story so that you will believe that Jesus is God's son, the Messiah, and you'll have life eternal. So if that's the case, he's telling this story. Why is he telling this story and what's going on in the story? Well, perhaps you've heard the phrase in English, we say, that fellow's a doubting Thomas. That woman is a doubting Thomas. And we use that nomenclature. Well, that term comes from this particular story. It refers to someone like probably many of us in the room. Maybe like you or like me. We can be skeptical, refusing to believe a story that seems, if you will, too far-fetched unless we're actually in the story with some sort of personal experience in the story or we know someone who participated in the story. We know one of the characters. And we go, we're kind of skeptical. And it's my observation that sometimes 
we tend to think of the people of the ancient world as not like us. You know, they don't have all the education that we have. They were on the, on the, on the wrong side of the Renaissance. They're not enlightened. And our culture has, you know, we, we're really blessed that we've developed this scientific model and construct. And so we probably have better critical thinking as compared to the people of the past. Well, apparently not. Apparently, uh, struggling to accept some sort of wild, nonsense idea, an idea like the resurrection, struggling to accept that is not new to our modern world. If that's the case, if the people of Jesus' day were the same as us when it comes to skepticism, what can we say about that? Well, let me give you some observations then about John's story. First of all, that sometimes God's work brings fear. Uh, as I look at this story, I think of some things. It's, it's like, all, look at verse 19 again, okay? You've got all the disciples minus Thomas in a room together with locked doors, fearful for their lives. Why is that? Well, at this point, they couldn't see how all this business of Jesus' life and death and now this resurrection that Mary's told them about, but they really don't know. They, they, they can't see that God is in control. They can't see that the resurrection and Jesus on the cross defeated Satan's evil plot. They can't see that evil has lost both the battle and the war. And as a result, they're cowering in fear. But if we, in retrospect, get to look back at history, get, look, get to look back at the scriptural story and say, well, despite the fear... God was in control all along. God was in control from the moment that Jesus came through his life, through his death, through his, through his resurrection. God was all in control. They can't see that, and all they have, their first response is to be people of fear. And yet God was there. Is it feasible? Well, perhaps I'd put it this way, that there are points of fear in your life at present. Is that feasible? The situation at school, the situation at work, maybe a situation with some relationships within the church even. Something, it's all very unsettled. And it's quite, if you get down to it, you're afraid. There's something fearful about what's going on. Is it possible that God is all involved and weaving his way through all of that and that God's plan is in place after all? Because despite the fear of the disciples sitting in the room with the doors locked, God was in control. Here's another observation. This whole story of what's happened here shows that Jesus gives grace to a doubting Thomas. I noticed as I'm reading the story that it's quite apparent that Jesus honors Thomas for his questions. You know, I, I would think that if Jesus was going to show up and show, show, you know, say to Thomas what's going on here, I, he would be, if, if it were me, I'd be inclined to say, you know, maybe you need to slap up the side of the head or something like that for not believing in my resurrection. What kind of follower are you? No, Jesus shows up and says, hey, come see the wounds. Come on. He knows what Thomas has said. Are you a doubting Thomas? Do you believe the resurrection occurred? Apparently there's grace for questions. You know, theologians have debated for centuries about the details of Thomas's story. Scripture doesn't give us a lot of clues. 
people, it's obvious that we can all agree, people can agree that Thomas says, you people are nuts, unless I actually touch Jesus' crucifixion wounds, I won't believe he came back to life. But after he says that, and once Jesus shows up, knowing that Thomas wants to touch the wounds, offering them to Thomas, we don't know if Thomas actually reached out to touch them, do we? We read this. Jesus says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it on my side, stop doubting and believe. And then we don't know if Thomas actually does it. The next thing we know is that Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Hmm. Did he stick his finger in Jesus' side? Here's a painting from Hendrik de Bruggen, early 17th century. Until the Protestant Reformation, most assumed that Thomas touched Jesus' body. But since then, the assumption has been challenged with this understanding, that regardless of whether Thomas actually put his finger in Jesus' wounds, it's clear he suddenly believed, and the skeptic became convinced. Jesus had a measure of grace that was greater than any measure of doubt that Thomas expressed. So, in other words, Thomas's experience shows that there's grace to be a skeptic. Why is this story here? John says, I'm writing this story down so that you will see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and then believe. But in telling us, the story gives us this understanding. You may be a non-believer, and there's grace for questions that will lead to belief. And in the midst of that grace, there's another grace that shows up. Jesus has a grace that gives a person space for a change of heart. You know, Thomas had a fairly entrenched position. He would have said something like this, guys, we all saw his body go limp. We all heard the soldiers declare that he was dead. We saw how his body was completely decimated by the torture before the cross and the torture of the cross. We all saw, we all know what death looks like. For crying out loud, your stuff about Jesus appearing to you, it doesn't make sense. It makes me wonder if I even, if, did, I, did I not realize who I was traveling with for all these last months? I've come to think that your middle name in capital letters is gullible. But then, then, but then, seven days later, Thomas moves from full-on skepticism to full-on belief and says, my Lord, my God. In other words, friends, you can change your mind about the story and the life of Jesus Christ. You can choose to believe there's grace for that. And in doing so, as you receive that grace, the scriptures are quite clear. You can have grace for others as well. Look back again at the story. Go back to what happened right before Jesus showed up when Thomas was in the room. Back to verse 21. I find it very interesting. Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive, and they're not forgiven. So what have you got in that passage of scripture right there? Jesus is in the room. He's talking to them and he says, you got peace. You got a mission. You got somewhere you need to go. You got the Spirit of God to go with you, the Holy Spirit. And then, oh, by the way, in addition to that big deal, here's another deal to think about. 
there's something about forgiving other people their sins. And I find that fascinating. I mean, if I was in the room, I'd want to hear something about what happened while Jesus was on the cross and while he was in the grave. I'd want to hear about Satan's defeat. I'd expect that Jesus would say, I told you so. But he doesn't talk about Satan's defeat. He doesn't, talk, doesn't say, I told you so. There's no mention of what hell was like. Though scripture tells us that he went to hell and freed people who were in hell. He doesn't even say, hey, I'm looking around. Where's Thomas? He doesn't even say that. No, he's got peace, mission, the Holy Spirit. And then, oh, by the way, the most important thing after those that I need to tell you about is that there's forgiveness for one another. Grace for others and for their messiness. Grace for others is tied to Jesus' resurrection. Which would then say, well, here's for today one final observation about why Easter matters. See, Easter matters because Jesus' resurrection not only provides us with grace for others, it also tells us of the story of the ultimate grace for ourselves. Easter matters because we learn that there is grace for our own personal forgiveness. See, the story of why Jesus came and why he died, why he rose again, it's an ultimate story about mission on God's part. Oh, there's things like wholeness and health, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. There's things about restoration and vision and mission, excuse me, and love. And it's all there. But you know what it's all bound up in? It's also bound up in your messes and my foibles, your missteps, my sins. All of that is bound up in that mission and it all involves God's grace. And I love it that Jesus, being very forward thinking, is able to not only speak to the people who are in the room and say, Thomas and you guys, blessed are you who believe because you can see this, but blessed are those who don't see this and still believe. Jesus is very forward thinking to this very moment right now. It's not just about what happened on that Sunday and the following Sunday. It's this moment now. Blessed are those who believe, he's saying, who don't have to put their fingers in the wounds. So do you believe? It's okay to have skepticism. I would say it's problematic if your legitimate healthy skepticism has grown to the point where it's turned you from a doubting Thomas to a full-on non-believer. Could I convince you otherwise? And could I convince you by showing you the photo that I showed you from when we were together at Easter as a family? You know, I said I was gonna show it because I was a proud grandpa, but there was another reason. Well, here's, here's, what, here's what caught my attention. So one of, the, one of the kids, I don't know which one, took that photo and it showed up on my phone later in the evening after everybody had gone home. And this sermon was in my head, you know, I'm mean, kind of thinking a few weeks ahead. And I'm looking at that photo and I thought, you know what? That's the, that, those three kids are the response that people have to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the three babies, they're twins. The twin boys are 18 months old. Pippi in the middle is 21 months old. 
They're all from the same, I mean, from our family, our daughter and our son and their spouses. And they represent the different responses to the Easter message. And I wonder if you might find yourself in that photo. We've watched those little babies grow to where the age they are, and we've seen their personalities. They have very distinct personalities even now. And I would ask, of the three personalities, which one is you? There's the one on the left of the photo, one of the twins. He's constantly on the edge. He's always ready to jump in at 18 months of age. Man, what's the project? I'm taking it on, all right? And there are people who jump into acceptance and faith in Jesus Christ and they accept the resurrection without reservation. And I've got great news for those people. If you're one of those here today, do you know that God's grace covers you completely? Your sins, everything is covered. You may have jumped in quickly and that's all great, praise the Lord, but whatever you have in the past before you jumped in, it's all covered in the grace of Jesus Christ through the work of Jesus on the cross and the blood that he shed. It's all covered. Then there are other people who, um, I think you can imagine which one, see which one I'm referring to. They'll tell you all about it. <laughs> right? There are people who are loud in their belief and their approach to faith, but maybe that's you. But I've got the great same news for you. Through the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, through his death, burial, and resurrection, there's grace for all that you will tell in your story as well. All the loudness that you tell it with, there's grace for you. And there's the one at the back, 18 months old. I'll tell you, he is no less enthusiastic. He is fully engaged, fully, I mean, he's full on, okay? Let me tell you that. It's just now and then we see him being a little more pensive and a little more introspective. Some situations he thinks through just a little bit longer than his brother and his cousin. There are people who want to believe in Jesus' ministry. They too, as much as everybody else, want to participate in his life and death and his resurrection. But they sometimes have a secret name, a middle name. They don't tell anybody else, but it's a middle name that's unspoken. And their middle name is sometimes Thomas. They may hang back just a bit, but I've got great news for any Thomases in the building today as well. There's grace for you as well. There's grace for you as well. Step in, believe, and experience the grace of God in all of our lives, in your life. Experience His grace, because that's why Easter matters. Would you pray with me, please, friends? God, I, I know that in, in life, uh, there are moments, Lord, when we, sometimes we're, we're, we're the jump in first people. Other the times we're the ones who tell you all about it. And then sometimes uh, we're the hold back and be quiet and think things through. Sometimes we have all three personalities within us and other times, uh, other times, Lord, it's just one is more important than the other or more expressed than the, well, more expressed than the other. The point is, God, all of us here today, in the moments of skepticism about your work in our lives, in the moments of fear about your work in our lives, 
We want to know that you are there. So Lord, I pray for my friends here today that they would experience the work of your Holy Spirit deep down in their souls for the places of fear, for the places of skepticism. Great God in heaven, bring us from those places to places of trust and belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And through that belief, as temperate as it may be at times, or as tepid as it may be at times, bring us, Lord, to a full-on belief that says, we believe he is the Son of God. And based on that, we gain life through you. Through this great, this great story, this great um, narrative, meta-narrative, Lord, of, of you coming in the flesh and providing us with examples of how to give grace to others and how we too receive grace from you. Forgive us, God. Work within us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.